right, Daniel chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 26 at the very end of that verse tonight. Daniel chapter 3, verse 26, I, I just want to pick it up from here and then move into chapter 4 tonight, but I want to just remind us of some things that were so important and, and yet we were sort of winding things down last week and, and we left off, so I, I want to go back and to me, one of the most important phrases uh, in all the book of Daniel is at the very end of chapter 3, verse 26, when it says, Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerged from the fire. They came through the fire. And remember, we, we said last week that, you know, because they would not compromise and bow down to the, to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had, had erected, that, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the burning uh, furnace. And, and we said that God doesn't always prevent us from going into the flames. But what we did see last week and what we will see again this week is he, he prevented the power of the flame uh, over them. The, the flame did not rule over them, did not dominate them in any way, did not harm or injure them in any way. And you may be going through the fire right now. And, and you have to remind yourself, just like I have to remind myself, that as a child of God, if God is choosing to take us through the fire, it is never to discourage us or to destroy us in any way. It may be to purify our faith, but, but He's going to do that, uh, and, and He's going to bring us through the fire. It may be a refinement. It may be that we go through the fire to touch someone else's life. It may not even be about us. But encourage yourself tonight. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerged from the fire. And you and I can emerge from the fires of life as well. And when that happened, notice verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praised be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent forth his angel and has rescued his servants who trusted in him. Keep your finger there in Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. I want to share a verse from the Psalms that goes along with the sending forth his angel. Uh, go to Psalm 34, verse 7 for just a moment. Back to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 34, verse 7. Some of you, this is a very familiar verse. Others of you, it may not be as familiar, but it certainly should be one that's on all of our radar screens as Christians. Psalm 34, verse 7 says, The Lord's angel camps around the Lord's loyal followers and delivers them. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was even saying here. That, that God sent forth his angel and rescued them out of the fire. Remember the story in 2 Kings of, of uh, Elisha and his minister. That there was this Syrian army all around them. And, and uh, Elisha's attendant was freaking out. Like, we're going to die. And, and God gave Elisha the ability to see that there was an army of angels camped around them. And they weren't going to let anything happen to Elisha yet because it wasn't his time. And he just asked and prayed that God would, would show his attendant the angels that were camping around him as well. 
So the Lord watches over us, and many times he uses his angels, his messengers, to do that as well. And so we see that here in the book of Psalms and in Daniel chapter 3. So then if you go back to Daniel, we're just going to wrap up chapter 3 here very quickly and get into chapter 4. But then the king went on to say that they ignored the edict of the king. Literally, that word ignored in the Aramaic just simply means they stayed consistent. The reason, in a sense, they were able to ignore the king's edict is because they stayed consistent in their own walk with God. They didn't allow, again, the pressure coming from outside of any source to to go one way or the other. They stayed consistent. And, notice, they gave up their bodies rather than serve or pay homage to any other god other than their God. And that reminded me that phrase of uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you grow to a point where you and I will present our bodies a living sacrifice. I think that's one of the, the, the uh, markers in a Christian's life. That, that comes after salvation. There comes a point where obviously we, we become Christians by faith uh, in Christ alone through His grace. But on down the road, I believe that, that there comes that moment where God continues to say, you know, I, I want more. I, I want more of you, you know. Uh, because remember that really spiritual growth isn't us getting more of God. It's God, in a sense, getting more of us. Us surrendering more of our lives to Him and trusting Him completely. And, and so there comes that moment in a Christian's life where we say, God, I'm yours. It's not just a matter of salvation and forgiveness of sins. It's I want to be your servant and I, I, want, to, I want you to do with me in my life whatever you have. And in a sense, uh, we crawl up on the altar and, and present ourselves as a sacrifice. Now, the one thing that Paul points out there, and I remind all of us because I've been there many times myself, is that the, the problem with the living sacrifice is you can crawl back off the altar. And there are many times where as Christians, we crawl on the altar and say, God, I'm yours. And then later we go, nope, sorry, I'm back off the altar again. But uh, these three men presented their bodies and said to God, God, if you want us to go into the fire, we're going into the fire rather than compromise our faith. And if you don't rescue us from the fire and we die in the fire, so be it. So be it. But we have presented our bodies as a living sacrifice. So then Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 29, I hereby decree that any people, nation, or language group that blasphemes, that word in the Aramaic simply means belittles or minimizes the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will be dismembered and his home reduced to rubble. For there exists no other God who can deliver in this way. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is basically saying the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is without equal. Now at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's sort of journey uh, of, of, of faith, if you will, whatever you want to call that, he was still a polytheist. He still believed in many gods. But at least at this point, he's beginning to recognize that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has no equal. Uh, and maybe he's even stronger than the gods of Babylon that he and his ancestors have created. Which again, this is causing tension within Nebuchadnezzar. And you're going to see how he sort of goes back and forth because it's very hard for him, I think, to even admit that all the gods that me and my ancestors have worshipped all these years really are nothing. 
And, and it truly is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah God, that is the one true God. Then Nebuchadnezzar promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And just like with Daniel, really what we're seeing here is not so much Nebuchadnezzar promoting them, but God promoting them through Nebuchadnezzar. And it goes back to the principle we saw last week that when we honor God, God will honor us. And just as Daniel honored God and God promoted and exalted and elevated Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego honored God and therefore God was going to make sure that they were promoted as well. He will always honor his faithful followers. Chapter 4. We don't know the time that had elapsed between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. But somewhere along the line, and maybe soon after, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, basically says to all peoples, nations, and language groups, and remember, King Nebuchadnezzar at this time was really the leader of the world because Babylon was the, was the, the leader as far as kingdoms of the world at this time. They ruled the world at this time in history. And he says, peace and prosperity. Then verse 2, I am delighted to tell you about the signs and wonders, literally the miracles that the Most High or Highest God has done for me. A couple things. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar is giving us a great example here. And that is that when God does things, we should want to tell others. We should want to make it known. And in a sense, Nebuchadnezzar even understands it. He says, listen, I, I think it's right. I think it's the right thing to do for me to make known and tell others about what God has done for me, in me, through me, with me, whatever. And, and when you and I read the Psalms, we see this principle over and over again of how the Bible teaches us and encourages us to make known the deeds of God, to tell of all his excellent works. And, and that's one of the things we as God followers are called to do is to make known uh, what God is doing and what he has done. Now, very interestingly, the phrase, uh, what God has done for me, literally means to reach out in one aspect. So Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing that in, in performing these miracles so that Nebuchadnezzar could see it, in, in performing these signs and wonders, it was a way that he understood that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of Daniel, was trying to reach out to him and, in a sense, communicate with him. Very interestingly, another aspect of this Aramaic phrase is it was an agricultural term used to till the ground. And it reminds us that when God performs miracles and signs and wonders and he speaks to us and he he brings this circumstance into our life or he brings this person and all the, the works of God that he does one of the reasons he's doing that is he's trying to till the ground he's trying to keep the ground if you will of our heart tilled up so that when he does speak to us and move and work in our lives it sinks down in and takes root and produces fruit. It really parallels what Jesus said in the Gospels about how the seed is the word of God and how there's many different sort of soils and, and God is looking for a, a soil that the word of God and the works of God can penetrate in order to bring forth fruit. 
and yet there are so many people who have hard hearts and stony hearts and or it lands for a while, but it doesn't take root, Jesus said. And really, Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing the same thing. He says, what God has been doing in my life is tilling the ground. He, he's preparing me. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is, is understanding this and getting this. It reminds us again of what I call the pre-salvational work of God in people's lives. That even before people become Christians, God is working on them. He's reaching out to them. He's trying to draw them to himself. And they may recognize it or they may not recognize it. They may be conscious of it or unconscious of it. But by faith, we can certainly uh, realize that the Bible does teach God is always at work in our lives and in the lives of those who haven't chosen to follow him yet because he loves the world. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom will last forever and his authority continues from one generation to the next. So Nebuchadnezzar, at least at this point, understands his kingdom's not going to last forever. As great as Babylon was, but God's kingdom will last forever. Now, pretty good place, right? He, 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 he's like a person that, boy, he's making a lot of spiritual progress and, and, and God's working in his life and he seems to be making, you know, steps toward God and leaps and bounds and understanding. But again, we don't know how much time elapsed between what Nebuchadnezzar said in the first three verses of chapter four and now what happens in chapter four, verse four. But Nebuchadnezzar later on relays this. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was relaxing in my home, living luxuriously in my palace. Now, I want to say this. There is nothing wrong with relaxing. In fact, uh, today, uh, a lot of uh, uh, Christians would do well to learn to relax. We don't relax enough. And and some people even go to the the extreme of, of saying that that relaxation is sinful. You know, it's almost like I've always got to be doing something. That's simply not biblical. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, God modeled having days of rest by creating the Sabbath. And then Jesus, with his disciples, said when they went out ministering and had ministered intensely for a while, they came back and he said, now guys, let's come away for a while and let's go into a private place and let's have some downtime, if you will. I'm paraphrasing, but it's the whole idea of it's okay to relax. It's okay to rest. But this word for relaxing is not that that kind of relaxing. It really means that he is at ease and it, it goes beyond that. It's he's becoming complacent. And you sort of even get this when the Bible describes the way he's living as luxuriously in my palace. I mean, again, we don't know how much time is elapsed, but, but Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, he's the ruler of the world at this time. He's got it pretty good, you know. He's, I mean, anybody who's ever read anything about Babylon, the glory of Babylon, the hanging gardens of Babylon. I mean, Babylon was just unbelievably beautiful. And Nebuchadnezzar was soaking up all of the wealth and riches and all of these things, and he had it pretty easy. And, and again, God is not against things. He's just against those things having us and dominating our lives. And this seems to be what's happening here is, even though Nebuchadnezzar had made a lot of progress, it's almost like, again, he, he went back. It was so easy for him to get back into being enamored with all the stuff, if you will, uh, that he had as the king. 
And at that time, he saw a dream. And that dream frightened him badly. And he says, the things that I imagined, the mental pictures while lying on my bed, these visions of my mind were terrifying me. They were alarming me. Now, this dream was given to him by God. And again, it reminds us that when God wants our undivided attention, God can get it. And the Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar said, so I issued an order for all the wise men of Babylon to be brought before me so they could make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Now, I don't know about you, but we went through the book of Daniel so far. Really? He's gone down that road again? How many times has something happened? He calls all the wise guys and they can't do anything. And so one of the questions I had is, why didn't he just call Daniel right away? I mean, let's cut through. Let's cut the chase and just go to Daniel because none of these guys are going to be able to do anything. Again, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if Nebuchadnezzar struggles with the fact of surely, you know, my culture and, 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 and my way of doing things and the way our ancestors and, and the gods of Babylon, surely they've got something to offer at some point. Sure, surely that there's, there's never going to be this moment where they keep saying, I got nothing. So, so maybe that was it. Maybe Daniel wasn't just immediately there. We don't know why Daniel just wasn't automatically called because it seems like he's the only one who can give Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the answers and the interpretations to, to these dreams. But we do know this. They went through and basically, like before, said, we've got nothing. And it reminds us again that those who are seeking for answers apart from God have a very hard time coming up with anything. But those who are connected to God and understand what God has said have an insight and a discernment that those who are seeking knowledge apart from God just don't have. We saw that last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So the Bible says in verse 7, When the magicians, astrologers, wise men, diviners entered, I recounted the dream for them, but they were unable to make known its interpretation to me. Later, in other words, almost at the very end, the outcome of all this was Daniel entered whose name was Belteshazzar after the name of my God. So again, you see, he, he hasn't gotten to a point where he's willing to throw all of his allegiance to the God of Daniel. But he is acknowledging that the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, certainly is a great God among the gods. And then notice what he says about Daniel. He says, Daniel, there, there, there's a spirit of the holy gods in Daniel. Very interestingly, this word spirit in the Aramaic literally means breath or wind. And, and it came to also mean mind. And, and what Nebuchadnezzar is really saying is, not only is there something different about Daniel, but it seems like he has the mind of God. And again, remember what we said last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That the Bible teaches us that through the knowledge of the scriptures, we can have the mind of Christ. We can know what Christ thinks about certain things and how God views this and how God views that. We can have the mind of God as well. And Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing that, that Daniel, there's something different about him and that he has an insight that all the other wise men in the Babylonian kingdom do not have. Hopefully. As we walk with Christ, as we grow in Christ, others will recognize that there is something about us that's different. And even beyond that, that when maybe they're looking for answers, maybe when, when life stumps them, or maybe even by observing the way we've navigated life, it may draw them to come to us and say, hey, 
Can I ask you something? Or maybe even when they go through a crisis in life, like many times, they remember who the Christians are and ask us to pray for them. That's a great privilege. But, but notice in doing that, they're even saying, I recognize, I don't totally understand it, but I recognize you have some kind of connection to God that I don't have. And that's why I'm coming to you asking you to pray for me. Now, we should all encourage each other to pray for one another, but I'm talking about from that uh, non-believer's perspective. Obviously, they probably either don't feel like their prayers would be answered or they feel comfortable praying to God, but they see, in a sense, a comfort level in the right way with us to be able to talk to God. And I think this is what Nebuchadnezzar is seeing here in Daniel. So then, I like this. He says, Belteshazzar, or Daniel, chief of the magicians, in whom I know there to be a spirit of the holy gods, and whom no mystery baffles. Now, the word mystery simply means secret thing or hidden. The word baffle, though, interestingly means to constrain or tie up. And what Nebuchadnezzar is saying there basically is this, that one of the things that made Daniel different was because when something was a mystery, it didn't tie Daniel up in all kinds of knots. It, it, didn't, it didn't, you know, make Daniel all full of angst and anxiety and all that. And again, that's something that people can see in us. We're not going to know everything, but we are connected to a God and we do have his word that, that we can go to and not feel like even when we don't know what the future holds, again, we sort of know who holds the future and therefore the things that come at us in life, whether we see them coming or not, we shouldn't get all tied up and constrained. God wants to set us free. And part of that freedom is having the faith to know that even when I don't know in my life what's coming, that I'm trusting the God in whose future you know, my, my life belongs, and I'm not going to get all tied up about things. And this is what he's saying about Daniel. And so the Bible says, I'll give you the interpretation, but before that, let me tell you, you know, what, what, we, what I saw. So basically, Nebuchadnezzar, beginning in verse 10, tells Daniel what the dream was. And I'm not going to go down through all of the dream, because in a minute, uh, Daniel is going to interpret that dream. Uh, so I want to go over, though, to uh, verse 17 of chapter 4 where uh, this announcement is by the decree of the sentinels or angelic watchers, angels. This decision is by the pronouncement of the holy ones so that those who are alive may understand. Not just Nebuchadnezzar, but those who are alive, who could be impacted by Nebuchadnezzar, by Babylon, that the Most High has authority or mastery over human kingdoms. And he bestows them on whomever he wishes. He establishes over them even the lowliest of human beings, literally the lowest class of human beings or the most humble of people. And in a sense, this is what the book of Daniel is about, is here's this young man who's in exile in a foreign country with all the great pomp and circumstance and power, and yet Nebuchadnezzar and all the people of Babylon can't figure things out. And who are they seeking to help them figure things out? This young guy, this young Jew who's basically a captive, 
And it, and it shows, again, 1 Corinthians, that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And God uses uh, the, the, uh, you know, the low things, in a sense, sometimes, and raises them up. And it just doesn't make sense from a worldly perspective. But this is the way God works. And this is an important point. Because if God works through humble people, then now that's why this dream is so significant. So the dream, verse 18, that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, uh, none of you, now you, uh, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, for none of the wise men in my kingdom are able to make known the interpretation. But you can do so, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now notice Daniel's reaction in verse 19. Many people are puzzled by Daniel's reaction. When Daniel understands what the dream is, the Bible says he was upset for a brief time. Literally, it meant he was stunned. He was speechless. And then the Bible says his thoughts were alarming him. Literally, he was disturbed. He was dismayed by what God was revealing to him that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. And then he says to uh, the king, well, the king says to him, don't let the dream and the interpretation alarm you. But Belteshazzar, Daniel replied, sir, if only the dream were for your enemies and its interpretation applied to your adversaries. And, And Daniel here is just simply, to me, exhibiting a love and a concern for the one that God had placed over him in authority. Remember what he said in Jeremiah. God said to his people, you know, you go into that land, even in exile, and as they prosper, you will prosper. So really, from Daniel's perspective, in a sense, he looked at as King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon prospered, he was going to prosper. So when Daniel sees that Nebuchadnezzar may not prosper much longer, obviously that disturbed him and dismayed him as well. And he was just called by God to make the very best of the situation as an exile in Babylon. So again, I'm not going to go down through the entire dream here. Uh, He starts out by talking about the fact that the tree that you saw that grew large and strong, verse 20, and he goes down through here and... uh, I'm going to pick it up in verse 24 because this is the interpretation. And Daniel says, this is the interpretation, O king. It is the decision of the Most High that this has happened to my Lord, the king. Now, very interestingly, remember, Daniel's name means God decides. And so it's very significant when Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, it is the decision of the Most High that this happened. He's simply reminding Nebuchadnezzar that my God is sovereign. My God is the one who's in control. You're the ruler of the world from the world's perspective, but you've got to understand, there's one who's much higher than you. He's my God, and he's the one in control. He's sovereign. He's the one who decides. And we need to remember that as well. God is on the throne. He's in control. He's sovereign. He has a plan and purpose. He's moving everything towards that plan and purpose, and Nothing takes him by surprise. He's never up there in heaven wringing his hands wondering, how in the world am I going to work all this out? No, not at all. Not at all. And then, verse 25. Here's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. And it's not the most uplifting of interpretations. In a sense, Daniel's being called by God to tell Nebuchadnezzar what he needs to hear not what he wants to hear. And he says, you will be driven from human society and you will live with the wild animals. 
You will be fed grass like oxen. You will become damp with the dew of the sky. Seven periods of time will pass by for you before you understand or acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and gives them to whomever He wishes. They said to leave the taproot of the tree for your kingdom will be restored to you. Literally, it will remain secure while you're being humbled by God. And then when you come to understand that heaven rules... You'll be restored again. Therefore, verse 27, O king, may my advice, my counsel be pleasing to you. And this is one of the most significant verses in all the book of Daniel. Daniel, in a sense, as a counselor from God, is telling the king of the world, King, here's what you need to do. Now, obviously, Daniel could have had his head chopped off. But anyway, Daniel said, I care too much about you, king, to not let this opportunity go by. And what's Daniel tell the king? Break away from your sins by doing what's right. Literally, tear yourself away from yourself. Because remember, one of the ways we know what sin really is all about is by looking at the middle letter of the word sin. The middle letter of the word sin is what? I. And that's what sin's all about. Sin is all about me. It's all about putting self above everyone and everything else, including God. And so basically what Daniel's saying is, King, tear yourself away from yourself. Do something besides what, how it affects you all the time. And live life for others. And then he says, tear yourself away from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Evidently, like many world rulers... They, they built their kingdoms for their own glory on the backs of those who were poor and took advantage of the poor so that they could build up their own human kingdoms. And he says, stop doing it, reverse it, start doing what's right. And then he says, perhaps, he didn't know for sure, but he says, perhaps your prosperity then will be prolonged or lengthened. Now, all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, but notice verse 29, very important also. After 12 months, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a year to try to respond to the dream and to what Daniel's counsel and advice was. What we're going to see is Nebuchadnezzar didn't apply it at all. And it reminds us of the danger of God speaking to us and using other people to speak into our lives and challenge us and, and encourage us or whatever. And we do nothing with it. Nebuchadnezzar had 12 months. God is not a God who will bring judgment or discipline in someone's life right away. God will warn that if you and I stay on that road, there's going to be consequences. But God always allows time for repentance. He always allows time for people to turn around. And here he allowed King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months, a whole year, to respond to his word. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't. Because, we read, he happened to be walking around on the battlements of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king uttered these words. Is this not the great Babylon that, what? I have built. And that word I in the Aramaic is emphatic. It's like, I'm it. I'm the belly button of the universe, right? I have built for a royal residence by my own mighty strength and for my majestic honor. Me, 
Me, me. Notice verse 31. While these words were still on the king's lips so that people and Nebuchadnezzar could always make the connection between the pride that was in his heart coming out of his mouth and the judgment and discipline of God that was about to come, there was going to always be that connection that while these words were still on the king's lips, a voice came down from heaven and said, It is hereby announced to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that your kingdom has been removed from you. Literally, your ability to reign has been taken away. And God is about ready to bring down the most powerful man on planet earth at this time and bring him low. It reminds all of us of how quickly life can change. It reminds us of even that rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, I'm going to keep building barns and bigger barns to house all my stuff. And Jesus basically says, you fool. This night, your soul's going to be required of you. You're going to die. Who cares about all that stuff? You're about ready to die and go out into eternity. And it reminds us just how quickly life can change and perspective can change. And so the Bible says, verse 32, you will be driven from human society You will live with the wild animals. You will be fed grass like oxen. Seven periods of time will pass by for you before you understand that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and gives them to whomever he wishes. See, one thing we learn about humility is that humility is others-focused rather than me. In fact, that's why humility is such a, a hard thing to try to get our minds around and understand. It's so elusive because... A lot of people teach that humility, um, a a lot of it is self-awareness. And I don't believe that to be so because self-awareness means that then I get to a point where I even recognize I'm humble. Yeah, I'm pretty humble. Well, if you're there, you're not humble. You see, humility is when I'm not focused on myself. It's when I'm focused on God and others. Even being self-aware that I'm such a humble guy is not humility at all. The other thing about humility. Humility is not letting people walk all over us, that we're doormats. Humility, though, is power under control. And power and authority that is used for the benefit of others. Jesus Christ was the most humble person that ever walked the planet. But he had lots of power. But he always kept that power under control and he used his power and authority for the benefit and blessing of others. That's humility. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar didn't do. Nebuchadnezzar used his power and authority to throw the spotlight on Nebuchadnezzar and to let everybody know, I'm great. And the other thing is this too. Humility isn't isn't seeing ourselves in some you know, lowly place as far as not seeing our value or benefit to the world or to the churches. No. But what it is to do is to see how God can work through me. That it's not me who's doing it. It's God who's doing it through me. And when I do it that way, that's humility. That I can do nothing on my own, but that I can allow God to work through me. And when I allow God to work through me and remain humble, yes, God can do great things in and through me. That's humility. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't gotten there yet. So God was humbling him. And so notice, verse 33, we're going to be able to wrap this up in about six or seven minutes. 
In that very moment, this pronouncement about Nebuchadnezzar came true. It was fulfilled. It was completed. He was driven from human society. He ate grass like oxen. His body became damp with the dew of the sky until his hair became long like eagle's feathers and his nails like a bird's claws. Can you imagine some foreign dignitary coming to visit Babylon and saying, hey, I'm here to see the king. And the guy goes, well, he's out back eating grass, wallowing around with the other animals. Oh, really? You know. Pretty amazing plunge. But notice verse 34. At the end of the appointed time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and you reason, how do we know this? Because Nebuchadnezzar, after this all happened, he wrote it down. In fact, this is included in the Bible, but this is also included in the writings of Nebuchadnezzar. It's just that God chose to use this part of Nebuchadnezzar's, in a sense, personal testimony, and he wanted to include it in the Bible as well. But this is also included in Nebuchadnezzar's writings. I, Nebuchadnezzar, and here's the key, I looked up toward heaven. Now, at any time, he could have looked up. Because the words look up mean to lift my eyes or set my eyes toward heaven. But it took probably seven years for him to get to a point where instead of himself, it was, okay, God, I get it. It's all about you. And I want to make this point as well. When people read this, sometimes they're like, "Uh, I don't know whether I buy that or not. I want to point out something. Not only have I been a pastor for 26 years, I've been a counselor for 26 years. And one of the things that, that counseling or even psychology and psychiatry will even tell you is that pride leads to insanity. Pride leads to insanity. Here's why. All insanity is, is not understanding reality. It's it's not understanding what's real. Well, what's pride doing? Pride is not seeing things as they really are. Pride is seeing, it's making up my own rules, my own universe. I, I elevate myself to levels that just simply aren't real. And so in a sense, a very prideful person really isn't living in reality. They're the kind of person that if they walked in here, they would... Just think that everybody should listen to them and follow them right away and, and that they're the smartest person in the room and why isn't everybody just, you know, following me and listening to me and all of that. They're not living in reality. So there is something to be said about pride and people who are lifted up in pride not really living in the real world. I could mention a star's name right now, but I won't do that. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> let me get to the end. So, uh, notice what Nebuchadnezzar says. He, he looked toward heaven and my insanity, my ability to reason, that's what the Aramaic means, my ability to reason was restored because God took that away in humbling him. He became like an animal that lived simply by instinct rather than by reason. And now God restored to him his ability to reason. And then he says, I extolled the Most High. I praised, I adored and glorified. I honored the one who lives forever. For his authority is an everlasting authority. His kingdom extends from one generation to the next. All the inhabitants of the earth are regarded as nothing. Again, that doesn't mean we are nothing. The word nothing there means without. It means we have limitations. It means we are needy. 
And we need to recognize who God is and who we really are and, and see our need of God. And the fact that we as human beings, no matter how smart we think we are, no matter how self-sufficient we think we are, we're not self-sufficient at all. We need God for the very breath we breathe and to keep our heart beating and all of these things. God is the only one who's self-sufficient. We're not. And so he's simply saying, I recognize how needy and how unself-sufficient I am. He does what he wishes with the army of heaven and with those who inhabit the earth. No one slaps his hand or literally hinders his hand and no one tells him what to do. And at that time, my sanity returned to me. I was restored to the honor of my kingdom and my splendor returned to me. My ministers and my nobles who earlier didn't want to have anything to do with me because they were embarrassed were now seeking me out once again. And I was reinstated over my kingdom. Notice, I became even greater than before. Now notice a very important principle. And this is what God will do. In order for God to take us up higher, like Nebuchadnezzar, sometimes he's got to bring us down first. Sometimes he's got to break us. Sometimes he's got to humble us. And the Bible clearly says... It is much better for us if we learn to humble ourselves and live in humility rather than lift ourselves up in pride and have to have a time in our life where God humbles us and brings us down. And folks, in America especially, even these last couple years, we have seen the high and mighty fall. And we've even seen our own presidents and our own leaders of our nation fall pretty far because they got lifted up in pride. So we have examples after examples. We see ministers who get lifted up in pride and fall. It, it, it crosses over every part of society everywhere. It is a principle that will live until God comes and rules and reigns on this earth. But the point I want to make to encourage you is this. Notice even with Nebuchadnezzar. God's purpose in humbling him so wasn't to destroy him. It was actually to make him a greater king, a greater ruler. And even Nebuchadnezzar recognized it. He said, after my humbling, I actually became even greater than I was before. Wow, what a testimony. And that's what God does. If he does bring us down, it's always to bring us higher up. But hopefully the next time he brings us higher up, we learn who's doing it, and who we should honor, instead of turning the spotlight on ourselves. So then he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, for all his deeds are right, and his ways are just, and he is able to bring down, to bring low, to humble those who live in pride. Literally, the word in the Aramaic there means self-confidence. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm a living testimony. God will humble you if you don't humble yourself. One other point. I want to go back to this word reinstated in verse 36 in my translation. It's a really interesting word. And if you've ever, if, if you've ever been to the chiropractor or you are a chiropractor, you will appreciate this. The word reinstated literally means adjusted so that things would line up. And what Nebuchadnezzar is saying in the Aramaic is, God had to perform an adjustment on me so that things in my life would line up the way they're supposed to. 
so that I'd get my priorities straight, so that I would get my perspective straight. He had to make an adjustment on me. Now, if you've ever been to the chiropractor, you know that sometimes you've got to go through a little pain in that adjustment, but once you're adjusted, you feel better. I think Nebuchadnezzar would say the same thing. It was painful, but the ultimate outcome of God's adjustment in my life is I was even a a better ruler, a greater ruler after than I was before. This is the God of the Bible. You know, yes, he'll bring us low, but he only brings us low so that he can take us higher. So that when he does elevate or promote or exalt or, you know, lift us up and give us opportunities and responsibility. It's so that when we're in that position, we're not trusting in ourselves. We're not trying to throw the spotlight on us. We're trying to bring honor and glory to him. And we always are recognizing that it's by his hand and by his strength and by his grace that we're even there and that we're able to do what we do. What a great chapter. What a practical chapter. Because isn't it true, if we're all honest, as I said last week, All of us as human beings, we struggle with pride. We struggle with self-confidence. We struggle with wanting to live independently of God. And one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar learned a hard lesson, and I've learned them, and I'll probably learn them again, and we all probably will, is that sometimes uh, we have to be brought down and brought low so that we recognize who's really in control. And uh, that's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to share with us tonight. Next week, another great chapter in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for these reminders of how you work in men's lives. And God, just help us tonight to take away from from this passage of Scripture just how important it is that we guard ourselves from pride and self-confidence. And that, Lord, we learn to walk in humility And again, that we we learn what humility really means. Humility isn't being a doormat and letting people walk all over us. Humility is living for others rather than always living for myself. Humility is, is having power and authority and position, but always seeking the power and authority and position to bless and benefit others rather than always myself. That humility isn't a further self-awareness where I realize just how humble I am. It's being so focused on you, God, and so focused on others that it's not about me. It's about you. It's about them. So God, just use this chapter over and over again in our lives and, and help us to just see that even in those seasons of life where you may humble us, you never do it to leave us down there, to leave us low. You, you do it in our lives like you did it in Nebuchadnezzar's life in order to raise us even higher so that we might be a, even a better person, a more gracious leader, a more humble follower of you. So go with us, Lord, through the rest of this week. Give us a great week in you. And bring us back Sunday, Lord, that we might be together once again to worship your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here. See you on Sunday.